So we are in chapter 6 of Romans. And we stayed on two verses last week, but we had a very short Sabbath school class. We have already covered verses 1 to 11. And I'm going to read verse 11 just to give us the context a little bit. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I, th- I liken this to baptism, this, this idea of symbolically dying with Jesus uh, and resurrecting, being resurrected with Jesus as a metaphor for the transformation that takes place in conversion. That's what Paul's talking about. So, uh, Susan, would you read verses 12 to 14, please? Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Notice how Paul paints sin as a master, a dominator, someone who controls, something that controls us. And note that he says we're not under that dominion because we're no longer under law. How does that work? If you're not sinning, you're not under the law. As soon as you sin, you're subject to the law. Is that correct? But it says, he says, sin will have no dominion over you. Which is kind of weird to think if we're, if sin's a condition. It it seems oxymoron-ish because we Adventists have spent our, what, hundred and, not two hundred years yet, thankfully. Yeah, yeah, 175 plus years. Mm -hmm. We've spent all our time advocating that we are still to keep the law, which sounds like we're under the law. Well, even Ellen White, you know, she had a big transition she had a mural painted, I think, in the GC, and she, and early in her career, she had the Ten Commandments at the center of the mural, mm-hmm. and then later she changed it where the cross. Yeah, actually, actually, James White was the one that commissioned that mural, Interesting. and Interesting. and originally he had the Ten Commandments, and then the cross, yeah. be side by side, but the Ten Commandments were kind of dominating the scene, right, right, right. Uh, and then after 1888, she had it recommissioned, yeah, yeah. with the cross as the center. And you had Sinai off in the distance, <laughs> and the Law Ten Commandments nowhere. Wow! In the mural. Interesting. Just the Sinai. Interesting. Experience. Is it possible? Uh, this is going to sound heretical. But is it possible that Paul seizes sees the legal construct in which the Jews have fallen into as sin itself, as the originator of sin? Or at least a, a an originator of sin. Again, that could sound heretical. Well, yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. <clears throat> I don't know verses well enough, but he also talks about 
for those that don't know Christ, they're not, you know, they're not held to the same standard. Standard because um, they don't know about it yet. They don't know about Christ yet. They don't know about His sacrifice and salvation yet. Yeah, and he, but he does say that um, even where there was no law, there sin, sin still existed. Okay. So, what does he mean by, for sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under law, well, but under grace? Is it, so, he, and, and, yeah, go ahead. The way I view this is, is you know, because sometimes if it just feels like there's so much contradiction, you know, but I think what Paul's trying to say, and I think I understand it as, you know, with, with Christ, you have an out. You have the lifeline, and you have a hand that can pull you up just like that, out of sin. And um, though we may fall again, um, our master is not sin anymore. That doesn't control our lives. We may choose to commit it. But that's not who are we're not slaves to it anymore once we accept Christ. So I see Christ as 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 the grace here that can uh, take us away from this situation. So in other words, and that Paul says this elsewhere too, the law has no power to save us. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Points to a savior. Only grace has the power to save us. Yeah. Points to a necessity. So so the idea is that the law uh, is what tells us what sin is, it describes what sin is, but um, it, it, beyond that, it has no power to save us. El, actually, though, Ellen White makes an interesting statement that if received in Christ, the law has power. If received in Christ? If received in Christ, the law has power. The way that works for me is to point out that the Ten Commandments are not a legal document. So when she uses law, she's using law in a design or descriptive sense mm-hmm. rather than a legal sense. Mm-hmm. And and the reason for that, the reason it's not a legal document is that you have, and a whole bunch of things are jamming into my head at once, <laughs> you have a situation where the law has no penalties attached and in any legal construct all law has penalty. It's elsewhere in the Old Testament that every one of the Ten Commandments has a death penalty. Uh, and if that's in story, that's in other laws. But in the Ten Commandments, there are no penalties aside from the third, uh, the, for, the first, uh, no, the second commandment, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation. Mm-hmm of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That clause is really descriptive. Why only to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me? Why not on and on and on indefinitely? Why, I mean, isn't, doesn't, don't you punish it by the law wherever some, there's an infraction of the law? In a legal sense, that's what you do. But here there's a like a default put in where at the third and fourth generation things change. And by the way, um, I've talked to, well, there's, it's in a book that I have called The Sins of the Fathers about a, a grandfather who molested his grandson mm. and many other little boys mm. and his son who had totally blocked 
the memory of that horrible experience. In there, there's a statement that there was a study that was shown that at the third or fourth generation, the cycle of pedophilia is broken. And I talked to Eveline West, who's a, a psychologist, who told me that in her experience, cycles of abuse are broken at the third or fourth generation. Did, did the third or fourth generation think have anything to do with longevity of people back then, where it's quite common for people to see their great grandparent, you know, and have be influenced by? Them? No, I think it's current now. I mean, the studies mm-hmm. seem to indicate that it happens now. Yeah. Uh, it's like God has put a default. Every third or fourth generation, there's going to be a turnaround. Turnaround. That's true in my case. Is it? Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I was not the one of the recipient of the abuse. I was the one, the one where you made choices were, that were that my parents were and their parents were. Yeah, and so <clears throat> just even in that story, it's true. Yeah. So what we're dealing with, what I'm, what I'm illustrating is this is design law or descriptive law. This is not legal laws. In legal laws, you have externally administered penalties, but visiting the sins upon the fathers and the children is not a legal construct. It is actually allowing, administering, the word visiting actually means to administer, that's this root function. Uh, It means to administer the consequences of sin so that at the third and fourth generation there's a break. Mm. Very merciful. Yeah. And then anybody at any generation can break if they want. Right. If they love me and keep my commandments. And then there's other things internally in the Ten Commandments that point to it as design or descriptive law. And one of those is the fact that there are seven commands that have to do with our relationship with God and seven that have to do with our relationship with other people. We tend to think of them as Ten Commandments. That's ten articles in the Divine Constitution. But there are actually seven commands on each side, and they parallel. You can put them in parallel with each other and show how they interrelate, like design law should. So the whole Ten Commandments is a statement about relationships and how relationships are to work. Mm -hmm. For example, you shall have no other gods before you. Parallels, honor your father and your mother. Well, who are our first gods? Our parents. Mm -hmm. So those two intertwine so that we understand God is our first parent. And if as as we love our first parent, our first gods, our parents, so we can love God. And vice versa, if we love God, we will honor our parents. And so they work in tandem. And I, I don't have time to take you through all ten. But that to me is how you can receive the Ten Commandments in Christ and recognize that they are design law and not legal. I think it's They're not legal for us as Adventists to remember that Commandment 4 is only a big deal because of Commandment 1. I mean, really. I mean, you know, you know, we, we keep the Sabbath well, under God actually, first. Actually, it's a big deal because of the prologue. Mm-hmm. I am Yahweh, who got your right. God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Mm-hmm. I am taking you out of slavery. This is not a legal construct at all. This is a freedom manifesto. Mm-hmm. And this is how you are to live as free people. And the Sabbath says, 
uh, in Deuteronomy, the Sabbath commandment in Deuteronomy is because I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, therefore I commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Sabbath is meant to be a foretaste of no slavery at all. Mm. Because on Sabbath, everybody rests. Everybody. Mm. Even the animals are not our slaves on Sabbath. Mm. And then if you do a chiastic structure, uh, chiastic structure is an envelope structure where you have A and over at the opposite end, A prime, B and B prime, C and C prime, D, maybe D by itself, maybe D with D prime. And anyway, the last notch in the envelope where the point is, is the high point. It's the main point. Well, if you do a chiastic structure of the seven with seven, if you do chiastic structure of the seven that have to do with our relationship with God and a chiastic structure of the seven that have to do with our relationship with others, the ones that meet in the middle are parallel. You're still dealing with them in parallelism. Mm -hmm. The high point is you shall not serve them, meaning false gods. Mm -hmm. To serve them in ancient Near Eastern understanding was to be their slaves. That's the reason why in Mesopotamia you were created in the first place. The gods wanted slaves, and they wanted to have to stop working so hard. So they created human beings to take their place as slaves. So serving false gods is to be their slaves. And what God says is, you shall not serve them, and you shall not steal. So stealing is taking from someone what is not theirs. Right? Mm -hmm. What is not yours, I should say. Taking from someone, something from someone that is, that is not yours. It is also giving to someone or letting go to someone something that is not theirs. So slavery robs a person of their personhood. Mm -hmm. it, because especially the biggest slavery in the ancient Near East was human slavery. I mean, the greatest theft of the ancient Near East was stealing human beings. All you had to do was go and do a raid on a village and take the women and have sex with them and have children by them, and you have a whole parcel of slaves. So that's the way it worked. And that's why that chiastic structure is an anti-slavery statement. Mm. We don't sla we're not slaves of God, and we shouldn't hound slaves. Period. You keep saying seven and seven. Yeah, there's seven commands. So which are the seven? Because you shall not have, you shall have no other gods before you. Mm -hmm. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not bow to it, down to it. You shall not uh -huh. serve it. Okay. And then uh, you so shall not take the name down. of the light. Yeah, take okay. every verb, every Got verb it. of command. Okay. Down. And you have seven that have to do with our relationship with God and seven that have to do with our relationship okay. with humans. I, I couldn't sleep one night, and that's where I went. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> some, some sleepless nights are productive. Where's the second one in this? And like, okay, because instead of six, you got seven on the, on the human relationship side. No, no where, you have, you should not covet, you should not covet your neighbor's Wife, you should not covet your neighbor's things. Mm. There's okay, two you should it. not covet. Right. And that, you know, you don't really need that, mm -hmm. uh, that two, double burbing, but it's the only way to have seven and seven. But, but, there, but there is a difference. Yeah. There is a difference, yeah. 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 Nice. 
Now, back to this. What Paul, is, I think, is trying to do is do a paradigm shift from a legal construct to a grace construct. Now, I want to take this back to Eden. We talk about grace as being unmerited favor, and the angels don't get it, but we do. Okay? I'm not going to abolish that statement. I'm not going to undercut it, though it might seem like I am. I just want to broaden it. Grace in the Old Testament means favor. Were Adam and Eve in God's favor? Mm-hmm. Then they were in His grace. Were the angels in God's favor? Mm-hmm. Then they were in His grace. Mm-hmm. Okay. Grace in the New Testament means gift. Did Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden have to pay for anything? No, it was all free gift. So they were in grace. Sin is falling out of grace and manufacturing our own fig leaves because we lost our clothing. And they lost something that they didn't even know they had? or Exactly. They, know? They, they didn't know. <laughs> they didn't they know. Were, I believe they were dressed with God's glory, yeah. His presence. Mm-hmm. And they just knew they were loved. That's it, yeah. And when they rejected that love, they rejected God as a loving person. They lost their clothing because they pushed out that love. I wonder about that. That just even the idea of rejecting—did they literally reject, or this whole idea of Satan trying to? Okay, reject is too strong. I'll I'll admit they they bought into lies. That oh, okay. rejected the lies rejected. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. I, I use too strong yeah. word. Okay. Because can we appreciate grace when we with believe them? lies? No. Can were they able to appreciate it without knowing really what it all was and understanding? Like so. Now we're on the other side. Um, yeah. Basically, it, can we? Can we? Do we even have the capability of appreciating something when, like, we've always had something? Right. You know, unless it's I taken think, away. And then, I think okay, the level. We get it. I think the. <laughs> I think because we human beings naturally turn to a legal construct, mm-hmm. the level we best understand it is in a legal construct. I blew it. I'm in trouble with God. Mm-hmm. He's extending me His grace, yeah. and He's forgiving yeah. me. Hallelujah! Right. 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 Um, like, like we need both to even understand. But but to understand it. I think that sin is is uh, falling into a legal construct, almost, mm-hmm. on, or at least it leads it to it mm-hmm. rather directly. Um, Five twenty. But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. This word for law is not the Ten Commandments. That's because it has no article, and where where Paul uses law without an article in Romans and elsewhere. He is using it as a legal construct. In other words, it's a legal principle, the whole construct of law. Um, But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. So we tried to deal with sin with our fig leaves, and our fig leaves became imposing laws on people and telling them what to do and trying to control them, taking them to court and suing them for infractions. That's more or less what happened in, in Babylonian beginnings is this great court system of law of where you can sue someone uh, or take them to court because of an infraction. 
So law came in with the result. And by the way, that verb came in, came in is way too tame. That verb literally is sneaked in. Law sneaked in. In other words, as we tried to make ourselves righteous, we tried to impose it on ourselves and make ourselves, force ourselves to obey. And that's law. And so law kind of sneaked in through the back door. And then, but where sin abounds or sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As parents, and I have a lot of parents around the room, have you ever pinned all the rules of the house on the doors of your children's bedrooms? (laughs) You haven't thought of it, right? Parenting doesn't work that way. My mom had a merit and demerit system. <laughs> I was always in the hole, always. Like I could do something good and get 10 merits and do something bad and get 10,000 demerits. So like I always, always overdrawn on my account. So like it was a no-win system. So anyway. But, so I didn't make so it. she posted it right on the basement door. Like, you know, when you go down to do the laundry and so forth, the merits and demerits were right on the door. You're all, anyway. Very, so it, so it didn't make you good, right? No, it just made me discouraged because I knew there was no chance that I was ever going to be like, I mean, I would never even break even. Like, so. And that's what law does. It traps us. When it, when it becomes a, a thing of do this and don't do that and don't do the other thing, uh, it's kind of like the Babylonians behaved. Uh, they had to keep all those rules. It it just presses us in. It makes us more bad. I watched this as an academy student. It was my classmates. Yeah, the more the administration cracked down and, and tried to enforce the rules and tried to tell us the rules and tried to get us to keep the rules... Uh, it seemed like the more rule breakers we had. Mm-hmm. You were here at prep, right? Okay. I was at Thunderbird Adventist okay, Academy. Okay. Were you right there? Yeah. That's where we went. Really? And I. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, we won't start singing the school song. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I know the school song. <laughs> you didn't know? We sang in every chapel. <laughs> the rules. The rules, right. The rules said we had to sing in every chapel. And, and what I saw happen as a result of the rules, the rules became more important than the students. And as a result, I... Uh, you lose a relationship. I remember the day we had a... I had a classmate in my class who was a troublemaker. He was always into trouble. And he got such a reputation that even when he, they actually kicked him out and he had to go to public school for a year and then he came back. When he came back, he was much more sober. He had been in counseling and, and stuff. He was much more sober. He went out of his way to be try to be considerate and be helpful. And, and he tried very hard to be obedient, but he had this reputation. And nobody would let that reputation go. And so he was always getting in trouble for whispering in the library when he wasn't the one whispering. Mm-hmm. 
the librarian wasn't watching and she heard whispering and she just immediately landed on him. And, and his frustration, he did a really bad thing. He took the hose, full blast, and held the dean's cat in its spray and knocked out his eye. Oh, no. Oh, no. And the dean was just furious. Oh, I bet. Living with this kid. So he was kicked out for, I guess, a week or two. And then he came back. And one day, uh, I heard yelling outside the window of the registrar's office where I worked. And so I decided to see what the commotion was about. My, my boss was in the, her office looking out the <coughs> window and jumping up and down and yelling, Go, get him, get him, get him. And I raced out the door and stopped in my tracks. There was the dean and another tall student. This kid that was the troublemaker was very short and scrawny. He was really about my height, mm. maybe a little taller. The prince, I mean, the dean had his him by the scruff of the neck and was trying to force his head down into a bucket of water. Oh, my goodness. The kid was flailing and... and and uh, yelling, and the dean and the other student was there trying to help. Oh, my goodness. And I remember standing That's there terrible. in absolute shock. And I'll have to admit, something of my faith in the church to make people good <laughs> died that day. Um, certainly not by the rules. So it's what I saw happen on that campus. I mean, the, the guys picked on this kid all the time, relentlessly. They were constantly pinning his arms behind his back and torturous contortions and, and making him cry out in agony and, and just pummeling him. Uh, and the faculty would walk by and not do a thing. That's terrible. Um, so I watched us all become bad, <laughs> trying to get some people to be good. You know, it, to me, it was just a stark illustration of the law cannot save us. The law actually makes us sin more. Mm. When we are under law, we sin more. Mm. If we're under grace, that's what transforms us. The law can't transform us, but grace can. Um, I'm just shocked that that kind of bullying was tolerated. I mean, they picked on the weakest kid. This was the 70s. And, and believe me, I had enough representations of bullying from teachers yeah. from elementary school on up. Um, if you want to pick on something, pick on the strong kid. Don't pick on the little, little bitty mm. guy. Yeah. I know, but that, it's just messed up. Really but messed see, up. see, if laws become more important than people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's where we go. Yeah. We all become bullies. Right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And we think that we're making people righteous, which in fact we're making ourselves very bad. Right. And people very bad. Right. So um, back to uh, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. I'm reading this in a bigger way than maybe even Paul intended. That it is grace alone that can save us. It can, it's grace alone that can transform us. It's grace alone that can make us any good that we might have. In us. I can't believe his parents let that kid come back. <laughs> you know, he left the Adventist church to sure. end the story. No wonder. And um, mm-hmm. 
that was no surprise to anybody who yes. knew the situation. Mm-hmm. But uh, somebody went to, who knew him, the family and knew him went to see him. He was pumping gas where he's living life. Mm-hmm. He had finished high school. His sister had gotten kicked out of a certain academy. They had moved. The family had moved away from Arizona to another place. And the sister had gotten kicked out of the academy that they now attended um, for smoking marijuana. And he said, yeah, you know, I guess they don't think I'm quite so bad anymore. He had this huge label on him. I was so upset about it that I nearly did a foolish thing, which would have been bad for him and for me. Um, More for him than me. I nearly invited him out for when it was girls asked the guys to girls open house. I nearly invited him to go with me. I wanted to walk by all the ones that condemned him. (laughs) This guy in tow. (laughs) But but, um, he couldn't be there that weekend, he said. And because his parents were moving. Um, and I remember his face kind of fell over that. He brightened when I asked him what he, if he was going to go to the open house. and He said, no, I can't. And he knew I was planning to ask him, but mm-hmm. I didn't. I think that was false for the best because I couldn't marry the guy. Sure, sure, sure. And if I started something I couldn't finish, that would only break his heart. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. let's yeah. not do that. Excuse me, your attention was great. Anyway... Um, so let's move to verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Some people use grace as license to sin. So that's where we're going to stop. <laughs> and we'll pick up with verse 15 next time. Um, let's have prayer. God, we thank you that you are not a God of rules and regulations. Though you have inspired people to use those rules and regulations as a temporary stopgap until you could show them your grace. We thank you, though, that you are a God of grace, that grace originated from you, that you are, in a sense, in your character, gracious, and that we can trust you always to do the gracious thing. We ask that we may let that graciousness transform us, to make us gracious toward one another, and to make us gracious toward those that we want to reject or we feel are bad or in whatever state we find them. Make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.